All right, well, go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Daniel. Uh, Turn to the book of Daniel, and this is where we're going to spend the next uh, few months of our time, at least together on Sunday morning, is walking through the book of Daniel, a a really a fascinating and intriguing book and a variety of uh, different things that we're going to get to engage. And as you're turning to Daniel, really by way of introduction, uh, let me just take a couple moments to try to frame up the book and some of the things that are going on uh, in and around this time. And so if you'll bear with me, uh, I I need to just lay out some historical uh, realities and and put some things in front of us because they really are important to understanding some of the things that are going on in the book. And if you heard me say historical and you're like, ugh. Give me 90 seconds, and for real, it's history. What's wrong with you? Okay, it's good for you. But here we go, all right? Here's what's going on. The events in Daniel begin around 600 B.C., a little bit before that, but around 600 B.C., and they're going to run about 70 years uh, until the people of Israel uh, are going to be released to go back into the land. At this particular point, in fact, we'll see this at the beginning of chapter 1, the nation of Judah is going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And you might say, Judah, what about Israel? Israel had already been taken captive 120 years earlier by the Assyrians. Now the people of Judah, and there were two kingdoms because after Solomon, his two sons, there was a divided kingdom and they never reunited. And so that's why you've got Israel and Judah. But Judah had staved off captivity for a little over a century, but now they come to the place where they're not going to be able uh, to keep that at bay. And part of the reason that this is really, really important is for the next 600 years, The people of God in some form and in some capacity are going to find themselves under some uh, foreign rule or oppressive rule from neighboring or surrounding countries. And the reason that's a big deal is because when Jesus shows up, so many of the people that were following him were so excited about him, not because of the kingdom of God, but because they thought this will be the one who frees us from the centuries of oppressive captivity and oppressive reign of other countries. And so those in Jesus' day missed the point that God's kingdom is not of this world, which is fascinating because over and over and over again, that's what we see in the book of Daniel is this idea of kings and kingdoms. And so we've titled the series, Establishing God's Kingdom. Because multiple kings and multiple kingdoms are going to attempt to lay claim. They're going to attempt to suggest that they are the authority. They're the ultimate ruler. They reign supreme. And what's going to happen without any doubt over and over and over again is God is going to prove that his kingdom and his kingdom alone reigns supreme. And so the book of Daniel functions then in a lot of ways as a source of encouragement to the church, to the people of God, as they perse- to persevere as they await God's coming kingdom. And so the tagline that we have for the book of Daniel says this, listen, loved ones, God encourages, pe- encourages his people to patiently persevere, knowing that he will establish his kingdom. You might hear them be like, I don't really like the sound of that. I don't want to be patient. I don't want to have to persevere. That kind of sounds awful. No, no, listen. God is encouraging his people to patiently persevere, knowing that he will establish his kingdom. God's not into the instant gratification thing. We do that all the time in our society. We'd be like, well, God, I want it now. And God's like, too bad, because you don't get it right now. 
Establishing God's kingdom. Now, the book of Daniel is divided into two very distinct halves. The first half uh, is a narrative, and it's uh, really chronicles and details uh, the the life of Daniel, uh, the different kings who ruled during that time, and then uh, the three other guys that you probably know them as a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, their their uh, Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, <clears throat> but we see the first half of the book detailing these individuals. And then the second half of the book focuses on uh, a, a genre that we refer to as apocalyptic, and it's full of signs, um, and it's a little bit distinct and different from what we're used to. And I don't know why, but when you start talking about apocalyptic literature, people get weird and people get emotional. And so it just tends to bring the crazy out in us. And so I will, when we get to chapter 7, I will, we'll drill down deeply on this before we go uh, into chapter 7, just so that we're all clear on what the objective is, and more importantly, maybe what the objectives aren't. But let me say right here at the outset of the book of Daniel. That not only the apocalyptic portion of Daniel, the narrative portion of Daniel, and truthfully, uh, the entirety of the Bible, this is what's important for you and I to keep in front of us. That the book of Daniel is about Jesus. You won't see him explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book of Jesus, but this book undoubtedly is going to point us to the person of Christ. And so the issue, especially when we get to the back half of the book, isn't to view some person or event incorrectly. That's not the great offense The great offense would be to miss or to minimize Jesus in the book of Daniel. So with that, uh, let's turn our attention now to chapter 1. Let me just start by posing a quick question here. When you think about your life, is there anything in your life that you're uncertain about, that you do not know for sure, or leads you to have some kind of fear, reservation, or hesitation? Anybody in that place? Okay, Uh, that would be all of humanity, right? I didn't even ask you to raise your hands because if you didn't, you're lying or not paying attention. And uh, I don't want to call you out. Not yet, at least. Okay. Um, And yet here's what we're going to see today. In fact, here's the main idea of where God's going to lead us, that God is working. Listen to me. God is working in all situations to establish his kingdom for his glory. God is working in your situation and that thing in your life, that thing that you're uncertain about, that you're worried about, that you're apprehensive about, that's creating fear in you. Guess what? God's at work in that. And he's using that to establish his kingdom for his glory and also for your good. And so what we're going to see with the person of Daniel is in the same way that he could not see it, that that, that these other three guys couldn't, there's no way that they could see all that God was going to do. And yet from our perspective, looking back with, with just clarity, the ability to see how God is using all of these things. So with that, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole of the text up front because I want us to just let the story kind of unfold uh, as we go. But I want to just one brief uh, thing here at the outset. I want you to look at verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17. Start with verse 2. Beginning of my Bible, uh, and I'm using the English standard, it says, and the Lord gave. I want you to mark that, highlight that, underline that, whatever you do. Verse 9 Similar phrase, and God gave, again, highlight, mark, underline, circle, verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them. And so what we see is is three distinct 
times that God is going to be giving something, allowing something, uh, entrusting something to different people for different purposes. But it helps us to see the structure of what's unfolding in the text. And it helps us to see how the story is unfolding. And the title of the message this morning is God's Faithful Moving. God's faithful moving. And so let's begin with this thought in verses 1 through 7, that God sovereignly moves his people. And I don't mean just that he relocates his people, although that's part of what's happening here. But God sovereignly moves in your life and in my life, his people. Let me read first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave, right, that's that phrase we just talked about, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Okay, well, that was a little surprising. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And then in verse 6 and 7 we see uh, that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael, and Azariah are given Babylonian names, and we could talk about how that's really an affront and an attempt to undermine uh, their relationship and their connection to God, uh, but we'll have to save that one for another time. But here's what we see in the first five verses. Just in the first five verses in the book of Daniel, you have God giving his people over to a foreign entity. You have God allowing them to take things out of the temple and to take them away and to utilize them in pagan worship. And then you have God allowing this foreign entity to essentially uh, go in and take the best and the brightest that Judah has to offer and to bring them back to Babylon with the attempt to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Not exactly the way you'd want to kick off the book if you're a Jew. And so it's very easy to look at this and to miss so much of what's going on here. Because one of the things that the biblical authors do not do is they're not thinking, hey, you know, 2,500 years from now, other people are going to read this book and they're not going to know all that we know. The biblical authors weren't thinking of you. Now, God was thinking of you, okay? But the author of Daniel did not have you and I in mind. And so it'd be easy for us to miss some of the things that have led up to this. Let me just fill this in real quick. Flip with me over to Jeremiah 21, just real quick. Jeremiah 21, turn to the left in your Bible. You'll go through uh, Ezekiel, Lamentations, and then you arrive in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 21, uh, at that time, King Zedekiah is still reigning. And he says this in 21.2, he says, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. So the king's like, hey, Jeremiah, go, go find, uh, go, go talk to God, go figure out what's going on. I'm sure he's going to be good and kind to us and this is going to be okay, but let's just figure this out. Jeremiah goes to the Lord. Here's what God says, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of the city. 
I myself will fight against you. I mean, that's crazy. God's saying, I'm fighting against my own people. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Pretty sure the king thought he was going to get a different answer than the one he got. And he continues on this, uh, this same message here. He begins to summarize. Check out chapter 22, uh, verse 7 and following. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by the city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why is God allowing this? Why is God doing this? Why this captivity? Well, here's why. Verse 9, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. You can go over to Jeremiah 25 or 24 and 25, and he literally is going to talk about um, Jehoiakim being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, that they're going to be there for 70 years. And part of why I'm saying this is I want you to realize that this is not coming out of left field. The people in Daniel 1, if they were surprised, they were surprised only because they repeatedly ignored all that God had said to them. And isn't that, isn't that amazing how we can do that? I mean, it's easy for us to look at, at, at Jeremiah and be like, these guys are idiots. But don't we do the same thing? I mean, we will repeatedly ignore what God says to us, and then God finally acts. And we're like, why are you doing this? I can't believe you do this. As if it's a shock or a surprise. And yet God is sovereignly moving his people. Now, let me point out a couple of things or just make note of a few things here in verses 1 through 7 around this idea of God sovereignly moving his people. First of all, make note of this. In verses 1 through 2, what we very clearly see is that this movement of God is a judgment for sin. Did you hear that? Right, this movement of God, that God is taking them out, this is a judgment for sin. God's not bored. God's not like, well... This whole kingdom thing's not working out. Let's try something different. Uh, this is God dealing with the sin of his people. Now, inasmuch as I'm saying that, do not go out of here and misquote this. Do not misrepresent this. Do not misstate this. I'm not saying that every time that God moves someone or every time that he, he acts in some way, that it's always a judgment for sin. But undoubtedly, you cannot argue in the text that anything but this is what's going on. And I say this because we can't be dismissive. We can't be permissive about sin. Sin is costly. Sin is problematic. Sin is destructive. It has deep impact upon not only you and I, but the people around us. And so if anything, let this be a warning to us. That God doesn't think our sin is cute. He doesn't think it's funny. It's not something he winks at. It's not something he gives approval to. It's not something he's going to pretend like it isn't there. God's going to deal with our sin. And so while God is graciously forbearing with us in our sin, I mean, just, right, we just celebrated the, the, the Lord's table. And all of us, if, if we engage at any level on that, we're, we're reminded of all the ways that just in the last couple of days or weeks of our life that God has been so kind and gracious and forbearing with us. And so while he forbears with us in our sin, he will not sit by passively or apathetically if you and I choose to callously, hard-heartedly, intentionally rebel against him. 
he will reach a point where he will say, no more, I'm dealing with this. And we have to hear that. But inasmuch as we have to hear that, hear also this, that the reason or the root or the motivation of God dealing with these things is God's love for his people. So you go to Hebrews 12 and talks about God disciplines his people because he loves his people. This is a movement or this movement of God is a judgment of sin. But notice also this, that God's movement will always be redemptive. God's movements are always redemptive. They're never wasted. They're never lost. Never a missed opportunity. And so even with the judgment clearly in front of us, that this judgment is going to be redemptive. This is what God does. He works good out of bad things. God loves redemption. And so even in this judgment, God's going to bring good to everyone that's involved. For Daniel and his sidekicks, he's going to deepen their faith and and, and grow uh, within them a, a deeper love of God. For the nation of Israel, he's going to bring about humility and repentance. What about the people of Babylon? He's going to expose them to the only God who is capable of saving them. And so while God is judging and and disciplining Israel, he is also simultaneously uh, witnessing and revealing himself to the Babylonians. It's fascinating. See, because what God is doing in Daniel 1 is what God does all the time. This is the hope that you and I find in the gospel, that God takes our sin and our brokenness and our failure and he uses it to point us back to the one and the only one who can save us and deliver us from God's wrath. And so what we see in story form is what we see explained in the book of Romans. In fact, if you want to, you can flip over. If not, just listen carefully as I walk through a part of Romans 3. In Romans 3, Paul's making this argument about the fact that No one's righteous. Did you catch that? In fact, turn to the person next to you and just say, you're not righteous. Some of you are like, I'm not taking that. I'm not telling my wife. She's not. Forget that, Mike. Okay, well, I'll tell your wife, you're not righteous, okay? No one is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one's interested in the pursuit of God. And so that's his whole argument. Let me pick it up in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's that's the means, that's the conduit by which righteousness comes, not on your action or your behavior, but, but, but faith in Christ. And he goes on and he says this, for there's no distinction. There's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Because... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus is a perfect sacrifice that bears God's wrath fully and completely and that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's beautiful. And so what Paul is explaining in Romans 3 is what we see unfolding in story form here in Daniel 1. God's movement will always be redemptive. And so, loved one, what happens in Daniel 1, what Paul's talking about in Romans 3, and what is happening in your life are all redemptive. And God will use them to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for our good. 
Here's the third thing. Look at verses 3 through 7. God's movement accomplishes his purposes. God's movement is accomplishing his purposes. Now, it might be hard to see at initial glance. How do we see captivity? I mean, can you, can you imagine being those guys on the road? Think about them for a moment. Chained and led in exile into a foreign land, walking away from home, knowing full well you may never see that place again. New laws, new ways of living, new people. All that was normal is lost, and not the least of which, the presence of God in the temple of God. You had no way to access that. It'd be pretty hard to think that there's anything but fear and confusion, sadness, <clears throat> maybe even hopeless is what would characterize those guys on the road. And yet, I love this quote here, God is moving the wheel of history to accomplish his eternal purposes. God's movement accomplishes his purpose. Loved one, be very, very careful to think or to assume that you know all or you see all with respect to what's going on in your life. In fact, let me help you out. You can't. Let me demonstrate. I've done this before, uh, but I'll do it again because I think it's a helpful illustration. So I've got a baseball here. I thought about bringing in a football, but I knew I'd end up throwing it to somebody and then we'd get really distracted. Uh, but, and you know, here's the deal. We're coming up on the playoffs and since my Giants aren't very good this year, I've just resorted to cheering against the Dodgers, which is what godly people do, okay? If you're like, oh, I like the Dodgers. Well, we can pray for you after the service, okay? But anyway, I have a baseball here, okay? And no matter how I hold this and position this, at no point in time can I see the whole ball, can I? And the same is true for you. So I can come under it or over it. There's always a part of it that I am prevented from seeing. Not the least of which I can't see what's going on inside of the ball at all. And this is really a metaphor for your life and mine. At no point in time can you see the entirety of it. Who sees all of it throughout all of eternity at one single moment? God does. Right? Your perspective and my perspective, it's limited. Right? It's limited. And we don't know all that God is doing. And so here, one of the fascinating things that's happening for uh, the nation of Judah, Dave Helm just puts it beautifully. He says this, the book of Daniel shows that God intends to do more than merely judge an ungodly nation. Instead, he offers a saving word to those under his wrath. And for that, he will need his people dwelling there. They will need to be at home in Babylon, revealing God's king and kingdom in ways that ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. I can pretty much guarantee you no one on their way out of Judah is thinking that. And yet God is accomplishing that. You don't know what God is doing. You don't know how God is working. You might feel like God is absent. You might feel like he's distant. You might feel like he doesn't care. You might feel like he, 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 he's disengaged. And yet I promise you, I promise you in his perfect timing, God is going to work out for his glory and your good, his purposes. So let me ask you, you just wrestle between yourself and the Lord on this for a moment. Let me ask you, given that, will you trust God's sovereign movement is accomplishing his perfect purposes, even if you can't see it? Will you trust that? Will you hang on to that? Will you believe that? 
I think about what Habakkuk says as they're waiting for this vision that he's had to come to fruition. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God never shows up early. And that's kind of a disappointment. God never shows up late, which means there's no land of manana in God's economy. Uh, God is always right on time and he is always accomplishing his purposes, even when we can't see them. Let me give you a brief story to help maybe drive this home. Um, Jenny, can we put that picture up? So that little cutie is my youngest daughter. And most, if not all of you know Ellie. Uh, Ellie turned one about a month ago. And most of you are probably aware, but some of you maybe are not aware that Ellie is adopted. Um, And so that is a whole wonderful, beautiful, glorious horrible story all rolled into one uh, that we could spend all kinds of time talking about. And some of you are like, I've heard too much about it already. But um, let, let me walk you back to a Monday evening in December. It's a Monday evening in December. Uh, my wife and I had been praying that we would be able to finalize the adoption before Christmas. I don't know why. We just were praying for that. And it was kind of, it kind of seemed a little bit out of reach, but we were just asking God for that. And we had been talking to the lawyer, said maybe. And so um, my kids do swim. And so it's pretty common for me. I'll go drop them off at the aquatic center and I'll just go work at the library next door. And so it's a Monday evening and I've got uh, earbuds in and I'm listening to just this playlist that's running through all kinds of different music. And I'm working on stuff. Email pops up from our lawyer and said, Hey, great news. We can finalize. We're going to do it on Thursday. And as I'm reading this email and all the details, the song, I didn't even notice it at first, but probably halfway through the song, the song that came on was the song that was just pivotal in moving Becky and I out of Arizona and here to New Mexico. And in this moment, man, like a ton of bricks, it just hits me. What I had always thought was the reason for us coming here was for a job and for a church. And I had no idea all the other things that were on God's radar. Namely, that little girl. Because had we not moved here, she's not part of our family. And my family is far poorer without her than we are with her. So I'm just telling you, you don't know what's on God's radar. You can only see part of this thing. And it'd be so easy to get fixated on, on the captivity or the difficulty or the hardship. And yet you don't know what God's orchestrating. You don't know how he's setting things up. You don't know how he's arranging things. You don't know how he's moving pieces into position. I'm just telling you, you can be confident he's going to accomplish his purpose in his time, in his way, for his glory and your good. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you just hold on to that? When you look at your life, can you trust? When you look at the things in front of you, you go, there's no way. There's just no way. Will you just trust that God is going to do that? God sovereignly moves his people and he does it for his glory and for our good. Secondly, look at verses 8 through 16. God bestows favor on his people. God bestows favor on his people. And so now they're moved out of Judah and into the land. We pick it up in verse 8, and now they're in the land. <clears throat> and Daniel's already uh, beginning to, to, to make a, a stand here. Uh, notice what it says in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Okay, uh, right. Part of 
what's going on is Daniel saying, I am not going to do this. Why? Why, Daniel? Well, we don't know for sure why, although there's probably some pretty good ideas that might have been a dietary a restriction that was laid out in the Levitical law, uh, that they were feeding them food like that. And so he's like, nope, God's told us, no, we're not going to do it. it. It's possible that what Daniel had in mind is that a lot of the food that they ate was food that was offered to idols. And so much like what we see in Romans or 1 Corinthians, where he objected to that, like, I'm not going to eat food that was offered to a, a God that doesn't save. It's possible that what Daniel had in mind was to sit at the king king's table, uh, much like today when you and I share a meal with someone else, it's one of the most intimate forms or intimate expressions of friendship that exists. And so he might've just said, I'm not sitting at the king's table uh, because I don't want to participate in that. We don't know what is driving it. What we do know is that what Daniel saw in that was that it was opposed to what God had called him to be. So he's like, Hey, I, I don't want to do this. Verse nine. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion inside of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigns your food and your drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. This is a big ask that Daniel is making here. That, that he would suggest that he would say, hey, can we do this? Because if it doesn't play out well, the eunuch's head is literally on the table uh, with the king in terms of this. And so then Daniel, uh, verse 11, Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, okay, here, check it out. Ten days, man. Test us for ten days. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. No idea how that's going to be better for him, but that's what he's convinced of, okay? Verse 13, Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And part of what we see in God's faithful moving is that God bestows favor on his people. Two things, two things I want to highlight here. First of all, this, like at verse eight, that you and I would make a commitment to righteousness. Part of God bestowing his favor upon us is that, that we make a commitment to righteousness. You could say this is a refusal to compromise. And we've talked about some of the potential issues that could be going on here, but Daniel's saying, I'm not going to eat this because God has clearly commanded that it's wrong for me to do. He wanted no part of this. He's committed to righteousness. He's committed to personal holiness. Personal holiness. Something that, while God's word hasn't stopped speaking about it, it still says the same thing. I've found it fascinating thinking about this week and thinking about how little of that is out there. You listen to podcasts, you read blogs, you read articles, you look at books, you listen to other preachers. You just don't hear much about this. Yeah, God's word hasn't changed. God's word's not saying, hey, it's not a big deal anymore. It was 100 years ago, but not now. I mean, that hasn't happened. It's just not much of an emphasis. And so listen to me, loved ones, listen to me. How you and I live matters. How we conduct ourselves matters. In fact, one of the things that I found fascinating about this is your conduct and my conduct, conduct becomes a source of credibility that the gospel has actually taken root in our lives. If I live in a way that just completely betrays any allegiance to Jesus, 
It undermines what we say about Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you and I have to be perfect and we have this all figured out and, and that we're all going to live without issue. That's foolishness. We could get rid of the Lord's table, right? We, we could get rid of a lot of things in uh, the Christian faith if you and I could actually do that. But there's a huge distinction between uh, I am going to, within everything that, that's within my power, to endeavor to live a holy and righteous life versus I'll do whatever I want. But it matters. First John 5 talks about that we know that we love God when we obey his commandments. I mean, John repeatedly makes that connection. And so ask yourself, am I willing to make decisions that might be costly to me personally, but will prevent me from defiling or defaming Jesus? Am I willing to make decisions? Am I willing to live in a manner or a way that would maybe costly to me personally, but will prevent me from defiling or defaming Jesus? Because what Daniel is after here, he's like we've already talked about this. This is a huge leap, a huge risk for him. And this has the potential to go poorly and go poorly in a big way. But see, he's committed to righteousness. He's committed to honoring the Lord. And so even though he's in captivity and even though he's in a foreign land, he's like, hey, this isn't going to work. I can't do this. We commit to righteousness. I'll just tell you, this isn't something that just happens. This is something that you and I have to cultivate. There's no magic pill. There's no spiritual pixie dust that we just sprinkle on ourselves. And it's like, hey, I'm committed to righteousness. There's personal holiness in my life. No, no, this is something that has to be cultivated within us. And one of the things that's fascinating, just fascinating when you realize what's gone on in Daniel's life is that when Daniel was born, when he was young, there was a king in power. King Josiah, and maybe you've even read about Josiah's reforms. Well, Josiah's father was a wicked king. Josiah's grandfather was a wicked king. And in fact, Josiah's grandfather uh, literally sealed the doors of the temple, sealed them shut. And so by the time you get to Josiah, it's been decades since the people have uh, opened the doors of the temple, since they've worshiped God and that they've been uh, exposed to the word of God. And so part of what is cultivated early on in Daniel's life is that the people of God began to rediscover the word of God. And maybe that's what you need when you think about committing to righteousness. Maybe you need to rediscover the word of God and let that be cultivated in your life. God bestows favor on his people. We commit to righteousness. Now notice God's response, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God grants favor to the righteous. Daniel chose righteousness and God responded favorably. Now, I don't want to oversell the order in the text, but I also don't want to ignore it either. That Daniel started by making a decision and then God responded in kind. And, and let's not confuse this with like Daniel just doesn't like the food or he's being picky. This isn't some manipulative ploy to get what he wants. Right? So he's not sitting at the table Wait, is that grass-fed beef? It's not, oh no, get that out of here. I want nothing to do. Are those organic? No, you got to bring the organic veggies. No, we're not doing, right? None of that is what's going on. What's going on here is he's looking at this and he goes, for me to participate in this would be to dishonor and to defame my God. And so I'm not interested. 
Now make the distinction, loved ones, make the distinction that favor is granted, listen to me, to allow for obedience, not simply as a reward for obedience. See, far too often you and I want to reverse the order. God, I want you to make it easy. I want you to make it simple. I want you to make it convenient. Then I'll be obedient. If you'll do those things, then by all means, I'll walk through that door all day. But Daniel, there was no, first of all, there was no guarantee. And second of all, he had made the decision. And then he goes to the eunuch and he's like, hey, I, I can't do this. And I won't do this. There's something significant and substantial to the fact that God grants favor to the righteous. Right, this is a word that we need to hear, that God has given a standard. And will we choose to honor that standard? So check out how this plays out. Daniel goes, he says, 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. And notice how the Bible demarcates how they're better in appearance, that they were fatter in flesh. Who knew that was better in appearance? Apparently we've got it backwards, right? Some of us are like, oh, I wish I would have lived 2,500 years ago. I'd be killing it, right? Um, And don't go home and look at your honey and say, hey, baby, you're looking really good. You're a little fatter in flesh. Okay, that just, that will go poorly for you every single time. That just does not translate. Part of what I find fascinating is that you could be fatter in flesh and all they've had is veggies and water. These guys are eating meat and wine and everything else. And yet this is part of God's favor to his people. Is that he's going to change the diet of all these nobility and all the youth so that these guys can live in righteousness. Although I think the moment that that plays out is kind of funny. Look at verse 16. I just have this, this image of all these guys at this huge banqueting table and there's all these just platters of meat and cheesy potatoes and all this good stuff. Look what it says. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink. So they're like, it's like laid out in front of them and they're just coming in, picking it all up and like, oh, you don't need that wine and you don't need that steak and let me grab that pork loin. And they're just getting they're like, hey, what are you doing with that? And then they're just dropping chef salads in front of them. Like, here you go. Oh, by the way, here's some tap water. Knock yourself out. Let us know when you're done. And you could just imagine, I'm sure Daniel got the evil eye from a few of the guys sitting around the table, right? Uh, Just like, what's wrong with this guy? And yet, right, this is part of God's favor on his people. God bestows favor on his people. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 17 through 21. That God positions his people for his purposes. God positions his people for his purposes. Verse 17, as these four youths, as for these four youths, okay, here's that phrase again, God gave them. Gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. That'll start to become a big deal next week when we get into chapter 2. At the end of the the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and then check this out, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They're standing before the most powerful man on the planet. Because God has orchestrated this. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And then this little note at the end, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. For decades, Daniel's going to be a guy who's going to be in the ear of the rulers of the most powerful nation on the planet. Because God positions his people for his purposes. Two things. One, God gives us resources for his purposes. Right, we see again, right, God gave them learning and skill, wisdom. Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Why? Well, so that none would be found like them. Why? So they'd stand before the king. Why? Because they're ten times better. Why? Because God's working out his plan. That's why. See, everything, everything, everything that they had was given to them by God. That's what the text says. God gave them these things. Now, check it out. Everything, everything, everything that you have has been given to you by God as well. Not just physical, not just material, your intellectual capacity, your faith, your gifts, all those things come to us from God. Why? Well, one, because he's kind, but two, because he's going to use it for his purposes and for our good. God gives us resources for his purposes. Secondly, look at verses 19 through 21. God gives us position for his purposes. Right? He puts them in the court of the king. Daniel's got the ear of the most powerful man on the planet for decades. I mean, that's crazy. And it has nothing to do with who they are. It has everything to do with what God is doing. Now listen to me. Most of us, probably all of us, will never stand in the presence of a king or a queen. Most of us will never ever meet the president, much less get a, tell him or her what we think they should be doing. Uh, right? I mean, like, that's not going to happen. Hey, president, good to meet you. By the way, I give you five minutes. Let me just unravel for you what I think would actually be a better approach. Like, that's going to happen. Secret service is carrying you away, and who knows what's going to happen. But all of us find ourselves in a position and we find ourselves there on purpose. So you might be sitting here this morning, you're like, why do I work at blank? Because God puts you there. Why do I go to school at blank? Because that's where God has you. Why am I on this team? The one I always love is, why do I live in New Mexico? Because God puts you there. And because Phoenix and Dallas are overrated and Denver's too expensive, okay? Um, it's true, and you know it's true. But more importantly, it's because God put us here. And so the specific way that God has positioned you for his purposes, you might lead a company, you might be one of a thousand employees at a company. You might have great influence at work at school, you might have influence over two or three at work or school. Uh, you might have a connection to all kinds of people, you might be connected to like three people. That is the position that God has given you to use for his glory and for the gospel. And so let's not confuse God's generosity in giving us gifts and talents with the idea that we're somehow indispensable to God's kingdom and his mission. He gives us these to use for his purposes. And so I get that we've spent a lot of our time kind of up in the clouds a little bit, a little bit broader overview. So here's what I want to do. I want to just take the last couple of minutes and I want to ask four questions that hopefully help to take uh, from real high to real pointed and direct and engaging in our lives. 
Okay, so you just wrestle between yourself and the Lord uh, with these things, and I'm going to trust that God's going to use them the way that he wants to. Here you go. Number one, what is happening in your life right now that God may be calling you to trust that he knows best and will work it out? What's happening in your life right now that God may be calling you to trust that he knows best and that he's going to work it out? Right? Will you trust that he knows what he's doing? Will you believe that he's going to bring this to a favorable end, even if you can't see it, that he's going to work it for your, for your good and for his glory? Number two, is there an aspect of your life that you need to embrace God's purposes for what's happening and not only your desires? Right? Maybe God's giving you something different than what you wanted. Something that you planned for, something that you intended. Hey, I thought that he was going to take us here. And then there's just at some point in life, right? There's this hard pivot. And now I'm over here. Are you going to embrace God's purposes in that? Or are you going to fight against that? Number three, is there an area of your life that you need to choose righteousness in? Maybe there's just blatant sin and rebellion. Maybe similar to what we saw in Daniel, you're saying, you know, if, if God would change the rule on this or if God would allow for this, then, then I'd happily oblige. So maybe you need to do it in, in a way that it's going to be costly and not wait for God to make it easy. Is there an area of your life that you need to choose righteousness in? Number four, are there resources or positions or sorry, are there resources or position that God has given you in your life that you need to leverage for him? That the place he's put you, the things he's given you, isn't simply for you to do whatever you want with, but maybe, just maybe, there's a gospel component, a gospel reality to that. God is working in all situations to establish his kingdom for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray, God, we pray that you would help us to see, to know, to believe, to trust that you're working things out, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when it's hard or it's difficult. God, would you help us to trust God, would you help us to follow? God, would you help us to lean into all that you have for us? And so God, as we go out from here, we ask that you would give us faith to believe, courage to follow, and a submission to just be yielded to all that you have for us. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.